Welcome to Diversity Conversations, where we engage in thought-provoking dialogue to identify leadership solutions to today's most challenging conflicts. Stream live each week, Saturday, 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m., hosted by diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist and CEOs Eric Ellis and Tommy Lewis. Join us and add your voice to this engaging diversity conversation. Good morning, Greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, the United States, and the world. My name is Eric Ellis, and I'm president and CEO of Integrity Development Corporation. And I'm joined this morning by my good friend and brother. Tommy Lewis, president and CEO of Make It Plain Consulting. Good morning, Eric. <laughs> good morning, Tommy. How are you? Oh, man, it's a beautiful day again. Doing great. Uh, I'm excited about the weekend, though. It's been a busy, busy week. I'm glad to be able to uh, meet with you, talk with you as always, and then maybe relax a little bit this weekend. Yeah, that's a good thing, man. Yeah, we end up skidding through the week, man, and it feels like it was just a sprint, you know, all week long. And then we skid into the weekend and we have been blessed to be able to spend our Saturday mornings together for the last five years. And uh, that's just really been a gift to each of us. We've always felt like our lives are so busy that there was no way we could do something like this. Yeah. And I just want to honor you and thank you for making the commitment, man, for us being able to do this, uh, you know, as often as we have. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. It's been a pleasure. It's been a journey learning every day. And, uh, and then, you know, keeping some things uh, on the record, if you will, meaning right. uh, some of the conversations go back and listen to them because they're so organic. And right. uh, enjoy a conversation with you, obviously. And then when we have guests, that's that's the icing on the cake. Absolutely. And we are so glad, community, that we have a wonderful guest today. Dr. Randy Berlou will bring her up in a few minutes. Uh, and uh, she's uh, really got a, a great story, a great family legacy uh, in, in this work. Uh, Tommy, talk about your week, man. How, how did your week go this week? Yeah, Eric, I had three significant call outs, significant events this week. Uh, one, I was working with a client. Uh, we were scheduled to do two sessions in one day. Uh, each session was about an hour, uh, maybe a little over an hour. And uh, fantastic session one. Uh, I prepared for it, made sure it was heavy on the interactive side and less on the me talking side. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was definitely not a death by PowerPoint or a right. sit and get, right? right. All the things that that we as adult learners don't want. We don't want right. to just sit and get, and we don't want to be talked at, and we right. don't want to hear everybody else's story, you know, at least a presenter story. Right. And so I made sure that everybody was engaged and we had a lot of fun. Right. And then we uh, had about a two hour pause uh, in between sessions. And uh, I was grabbing the lunch at the location, you know, just checking emails, following up on calls. And as I was, you know, kind of shutting down to ramp up, for the next session, um, I got a call from the contact and said, Tommy, I am so sorry. Uh, I was working with nurses. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's been a situation that the uh, 10 people that were supposed to be in your session, very intimate session, uh, we need all hands on deck. Okay. And they continue to, she, she apologized. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And Eric, I'm like, no problem. Right. Right. And, and I, I wasn't saying it because it was no problem. I was saying it because that's what I and Make It Plain is. We are right. flexible, that's adaptable, right. 
humble. And that is the thread that that really weaves itself out of everything that we do. Right. And so we were very, very happy about uh, just have simply, you know, rescheduling. Um, and so I wanted to call that out where there may be other people who are more rigid. Um, yeah, we like details and we like to be on time and start on time, end on time and all that good stuff. But life happens, Eric. Right. Life happens. Exactly right. Uh, and then the last two things very quickly on a personal level, uh, my son doing well, he's testing this morning, uh, the youngest one, Bryce. And uh, uh, we, we're excited that he is going to, you know, take his next step to Howard University. So that's going to happen at HBCU. And then he'll do things after that. Uh, and then that gives me reprieve as I'm continuing to learn him. Uh, we know we got the other boys and the grandchildren, like we said, over Thanksgiving, they were all over, but it's been a blessing professionally and personally. It's been a great week. That's good, Tommy. That's good, man. I appreciate that. <clears throat> Same here. I uh, had a chance to uh, go to Louisville and uh, watch a uh, CEO in action. Uh, you know, we've been working with Louisville Water there. I've been taking them through our achieving sustainable inclusion uh, effort. Uh, they've got the core council that we've established there now. Uh, that focuses on culture, ownership, respect, and engagement. And so they had uh, suggested that he uh, needed to really go uh, around the organization and really set the foundation for this work that we're doing and really talking to, to uh, employees about his own journey, the things that he's learned, the things that he's learned about his own unconscious biases, uh, and even apologize for things that have happened in the past. And, uh, uh, you know, they showed an inappropriate video about three years ago, man, that really uh, just, uh, you know, made marginalized people feel horrible. And then they sort of passed on. They took action. Most of that quiet. Uh, and uh, he boldly, man, uh, had four sessions where he poured out his heart, uh, talked about how he grew up and and what he learned and got from his uh, growing up, but what he didn't get and some of the limitations and some of the the, uh, the understandings that he didn't receive as he was growing up. Uh, he's gone on uh, rides with metering people, every single person seeing what they do and then learning about them. And so it was really powerful, man. And to see this council that has, you know, it's just starting. We've taken them through uh, a two month orientation, man, go to war on his behalf, too. So if anybody said anything, I mean, these people that at the beginning were kind of, you know, opposing each other have become yeah. a team. And now they are really an army behind him because he spent so much time with them. As I said uh, before, Tommy, that a lot of uh, CEOs are the executive sponsors for the diversity councils, but very few of them then sit in and join those councils. And he's literally joined the core council and has been a part of each meeting as busy as his schedule is. So that was really uh, powerful. Uh, the other thing that I had uh, happened this week is uh, I think I mentioned to you that I spoke at uh, the University of Cincinnati. Uh, one of the, the uh, uh, professors there in the School of Psychology invites me annually to come over and talk to the students. And you know how it is, Tommy. It's something that you got to do in the evening. You're almost dreading because, you, you know, you're tired from all the travel and other things that you. But I, I continuously say yes. And I continuously learned that I am more blessed oftentimes by the students than they even are by me. And so I spoke to a class for a couple hours, 
in the evening. And then I was leaving and a young African-American just chased me out of the room, man, and just said, can I talk, you know, Professor, can I talk to, you know, Mr. Ellis? And uh, he shared with me, said the things that you shared, especially what you shared about your own children and some of the uh, uh, anxiety that they've been dealing with and panic disorder and, and the cost, the impact that it's had on their education and your perspective about that your willingness to uh, uh, stand behind your children through whatever storms they face. He said, I needed to hear that. He said, because I'm going through a lot of things. And so we had a great conversation. I gave him my card and uh, said, hey man, you know, you follow up with me. And you know, I'd love to uh, chat with you, maybe have you out to the office. And so this week he came out and met with me at the office and I had my son, my youngest son, who they're about the same age come and, uh, you know, uh, meet with him and do some music and things like that. So that was really a blessing, man. And uh, he shared some other things around what his family has gone through, man. And boy, young people are going through a lot and they're powering through a lot. But we all need the village. You know, uh, it takes a village to raise uh, young people. We've got to be a part of that village. So I, I told him, I said, hey, you got a family in Cincinnati now, you know, yes, sir. Whether you want it or not, I think his family's from Jamaica. Uh, and then yesterday, I had a chance to go to the funeral of Dr. Uh, Odell Owens, and uh, powerful event, man. Uh, you know, uh, Cincinnati came out. Uh, they responded to him in a major way. They gave him a key to the city, his family. Uh, you know, Dr. Odell Owens Day. Uh, the governor sent representation. Uh, but uh, the most powerful thing that happened at the funeral was his daughter did the eulogy and wow. she has been hurting, man. And I hugged her uh, before she gave the eulogy and she just said, I don't know how I'm going to make it through without my father. And uh, man, the eulogy that she gave was an open letter to her father. And uh, right now I'm just moved by what she said. And that's what we want to be to our families is the kind of person that when we're gone, uh, our family knows that they were loved. So indeed, indeed. That was yeah. yeah, Eric, thank you again for sharing. And, uh, you know, we dedicated last week's show uh, to Dr. Odell Owens. Uh, peace be upon him and his family, uh, prayers and blessings. And, uh, and so for us that are survivors, uh, let us continue to support one another, love one another, keep each other up in prayer uh, when we need that mental break that uh, kind of that uh, physical break at times, because some of that mental stuff be stuff becomes physical. Uh, let us be partners in this. And so that's why I think this diversity conversations is so important, at least to me, because it allows me to have some consistency of where I can go to say, hey, I need some help. Here's what's going on. Maybe throw two cents in there and keep it going. So I'm excited. Thank you, Eric. So we are uh, just so proud to have Dr. Randy Berlou join us this morning. Good morning. Uh, Randy, how are you this morning? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me this morning. We are delighted to have you as a guest on our show, and we're hoping that this won't be the last time. And as we do always, I'd like you to start by just introducing yourself uh, to, the, uh, to our community. Uh, letting them know who you are and maybe even something about uh, your family in this city of Cincinnati. 
Yeah, so my name is Randy Berlou. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, but I've spent most of my career doing research and consulting with nonprofit organizations that work primarily in communities of color. And that work looks like evaluating whether or not the programs are implementing or working and thinking about how to better partner with communities of color. Um, as you mentioned, my biggest inspirations, I feel I'm, I'm very lucky. My biggest inspirations in my life have been my parents. Uh, my father, who is no longer with us, was a judge and a lawyer and a big name in civil rights in the city. He was the head of the Civil Rights Commission in the state. Uh, he was a judge and he was someone who always led with his principles mm -hmm. and always tried to ensure that whether he was on the bench or whether he was representing people, the people in front of him got to bring their whole selves into the courtroom and be seen for who they were. And that's something I try to bring into my work. And my mother, who is also a psychologist, um, is someone who I've always aspired to be like. Um, she went to Michigan for grad school, so I decided okay. to go to Michigan for grad school. We do all sorts of work together. Um, she is amazing. Uh, she retired formally a few years ago. And I remember saying at her retirement event that one of the biggest uh, inspirations for me had been growing up sort of watching her do her work in several ways. One, because um, at the end of her university career, it came out that she had mentored nearly 40 black PhDs. And to be able to have that kind of impact in the field of psychology, I think um, is just really amazing, especially given the mental health needs in our community. And I think the other thing that inspires me about my mother is that she has been focused her whole career on making sure that her talents and her expertise don't stay in the ivory tower. She is always looking for ways to use what she learns, use what she has access to, use the tools at her disposal to make a real-time impact in the community. And that's something that I aspire to do as well. Right. What I would say, thank you for that. That's so helpful. Uh, what I would say is I think about both of your parents, uh, Tommy, they were like, you know, real live superheroes. Uh, I mean, they were huge. And yet when you saw them, they were like mild mannered, kind. Yeah. Uh, her, her mother could eat you up with a smile. I mean, just cut you a thousand different ways uh, with a big smile, you know, and you'd be like uh, smiling along with her, not realizing that if you say something crazy, she's going to get you together on that. But they were both brilliant, humble people that never liked the light to be shined on them, uh, but were doing just amazing things and providing amazing leadership in our community in ways that have had tremendous impact uh, on this city and beyond. So we're just grateful to have uh, you uh, and, and that legacy be a part of the show. Is there a story that you might uh, share about yourself that would help the community understand a little more about what you view your purpose as being on earth? Because hopefully all of us come to earth and begin to recognize uh, our purpose and, uh, and what we stand for. Is there a story that you could share uh, from your own background that would help people to better understand who you are? Yeah, you know, recently in the last few years, I've been facilitating an implicit bias session at the Diversity and Inclusive Teaching Academy. 
And one of the things I try to think about is how this uh, idea of implicit bias has been a thread in my life, even uh, before I knew what that was, before I knew a name for it. And one of the stories that I tell in that session every year is about a time when I was 12 years old. And uh, at the time, my best friend and I were obsessed with our hair and hair products and hairstyles. And one day our uh, parents had allowed us to go to a local pharmacy, probably to get some snacks or something like that. And we went into this pharmacy and my friend and I noticed that they had a bowl out advertising free samples of hair products. So obviously we were really excited about that. My best friend took some of those samples and put them in our pocket. And the next thing you know, one of the store clerks had run over and put my 12 year old friend in a headlock. And he accused her of stealing. And she said, I haven't stolen anything. These are just the free hair samples that we're standing next to. And he didn't believe her. And he called another grown man working at the store over and instructed that man to empty her pockets. And he emptied her pockets. And what he found was just those hair samples uh, in her pocket. And we didn't get an apology or anything like that. We were told we needed to leave the store. And of course we went home and told our parents who were just extremely upset um, and they called the store manager. My father called the store manager and insisted that they apologize and he refused. And he said that we had looked like we were stealing, that you know, it was their job to investigate. But as it happens, my father at the time was the news correspondent um, for a local news program. And so he told them, you know, here's your deadline. Either you apologize to my daughter and her friend or this is gonna be the next story, mm. the news. <laughs> And so they apologize at the last minute, pretty begrudgingly. Right. But I think, you know, that experience so early on has really shaped my perspective. And then to come full circle, I had a similar experience with my own son when he was 10 years old at a local store. And so, you know, my father always said that he thought of his law degree as a tool. Um, he could use to make change. And so that's how I like to think about the education that I've been able to attain, the professional experiences that I've been able to attain, that those are tools to try to mitigate some of these experiences that are continuously happening. And, and Dr. Berlou, thank you for sharing these experiences. I would imagine for you and others who may have experienced similar uh, type of events that they can be traumatizing particularly across generations. This happened in your younger years. And then years later, it happened directly uh, within your family with, with your son. Can, can you talk a little bit about how implicit bias in events like this continue to show up in a person's psychology and emotions? Uh, in other words, are we hypersensitive to certain events? Do we become numb? Do we depress certain feelings or emotions? How does it show up in a person's psychology and sociology as we get older? I think it it shapes the way we respond to things. Um, you know, I tell the story all the time, you know, my husband, who is a black man, you know, I have all sorts of fears about him out in the world and what's gonna happen. I remember a time where one of our cars needed some work done. So we had rented a car 
And um, we, you know, had a lot going on, needed to pick up our son, drop off the rental car, pick up the car um, that we were um, having fixed at the shop. And so my first solution that I had proposed to my husband was that like in the evening after the rental car place had closed, could he just drop, you know, meet me over there, take the rental car there where our son was and after school care was not that far. So I'd pick up our son and I would drive over. And his response to me was, are you crazy? I can't be at this uh, car place after hours. It's dark outside. There's nobody there to verify what I'm doing. We were you know, wanting to do something very legitimate, return their car to them. But his feeling was that would not be safe for me to mm -hmm. be in this environment with, you know, without someone there to be able to verify that I have a real purpose for being there. And so I do think it changes the way we move in the world. Yeah. As a parent and, you know, the mother of a black son, I feel like I'm always trying to sort of walk this line around wanting him to be free in the world, wanting him to feel like the possibilities are endless, but also wanting him to be safe. And so how do you raise your son to be able to work, uh, walk around in this world feeling burdenless, but also aware enough to know that there are a lot of landmines that you have to, to, to be aware of. And so I think that's a heavy psychological burden for him as a young black man. And it's a heavy psychological burden for me as his mother. Right, and I've heard, uh, I know my father used to talk about differential consequences and really uh, suggesting that you have an obligation to prepare them for the worst possible outcome because if you don't and they don't recognize that, they could literally walk blindly into something that could cost them their lives. And so it's not like you can ignore the need to prepare them for that. Absolutely. I remember talking uh, with a guy I was in a diversity training with uh, years ago, and he was a white man. And one of the things that he was saying is that he had sons as well. And, you know, they were typical young men getting into, you know, some foolishness now and then, and they were getting ready to go to college. And he said, you know, a big part of me really hopes that at some point while they're home with me, they sort of get in some interaction with the police just to kind of scare them enough to, you know, not do this type of foolishness when they leave. And I said to him, are you kidding me? That's, that's my worst nightmare. Right. That my son would get into some sort of typical teenage foolishness and that would involve the police because my fear would be that, you know, due to implicit biases, systemic biases, that could end him being killed. And um, so it is this idea of differential consequences, even the way we think about how we raise our kids, how we teach them lessons, how we keep them safe are just very different. Wow. Uh, what, we, we talked about, Tommy and I have been threatening for a few weeks. We're going to pivot uh, just a little bit and then we'll pivot right back to this uh, conversation. We've been talking about, uh, you know, having somebody to, to sort of come to the community and talk a little bit about Kanye West. He's been in the media left and right here. Sometimes I know we all look at it and yawn, like what is the media doing? Does this need as much light as it's getting? Uh, but I think that I appreciated your perspective on that. Uh, Will Smith as well, what he went through, you know, uh, slapping Chris Rock. Uh, a lot of times we look at stars and we talk about uh, the mental challenges that they face. And sometimes we put everything under an umbrella of mental illness. 
can you talk a little bit about what is mental illness in fact and what is the difference between mental illness and character flaws and challenges and maybe even the over the intersection of those uh, to help us and our community get a perspective on how to view these things as they occur. Absolutely. And so as I was telling you when we were talking about this previously, I really push back at the idea of saying, oh, the reason this person is being racist or anti-Semitic is because of mental health. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we know that is that the vast majority of people with mental illnesses are not racist and anti-Semitic. And the vast majority of people who are racist and anti-Semitic are not mentally ill. Those two things can coexist. You know, there can be people who are both mentally ill and also uh, hateful, but it doesn't mean that one of those things cause the other. There are some very extreme cases um, of mental illness when people have very serious delusions that may involve some sort of racism or anti-Semitic, but that is Semitism, but that is really the exception, not the rule. And I think we have to be careful about giving people a pass and saying, you know, you said this anti-Semitic thing and this racist thing, but we're going to overlook it because it's your mental illness. Right. I don't think that we should do that. I think we should treat those things in the vast majority of cases as being very separate processes. And so in the case of Kanye West, I think we have to be um, very clear that, um, you know, he has been anti-Semitic. He has been anti-Black. And he needs to feel all those consequences. He needs to be held accountable for those actions and he needs to not be given any passes for that. And we need to make it clear to people from marginalized groups that we are gonna fight back against this. We're not gonna just arbitrarily give out passes to people for saying and doing these types of hurtful things. We're gonna take it seriously and we're gonna be clear that we don't tolerate that type of behavior. I love that when I heard you say it because there was a consistency uh, around your principle there that goes across color. You know, you're not giving Kanye some kind of a pass because he's the same race as we are. You're saying that we've got to hold people accountable. Tommy, you had something? I did. And this is interesting to me. Uh, and I agree with what you're saying. And I'm curious, per my experience with uh, a number of people uh, around the world, literally, I found that in some cases, a person may be exposed to a piece of information, not necessarily knowing how to process information, that information, and then get overwhelmed with that information, believing it's the truth. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, I went to one of my universities is a historically black college and university, HBCU. I know people who have come from a majority white high school go down to the HBCU, get involved with a lot of black people, hear some black history, and then all of a sudden, everything that they think is black. I wanna wear black, I wanna eat everything that's black, I wanna, they get overwhelmed like it's a cult, right? And then a couple of years later, maybe a couple of months later, uh, they learn something else like, nah, that was the little phase I went through. When I listen to Kanye West, over the years from him transitioning from his automobile accident, right? Getting into music, uh, leaving his community, uh, uh, really having some rifts with his mother, transitioning into statements like, 
around slavery, right? And kind of minimizing that, moving into, to your point, the anti-Semitic comments that may have been in his thoughts already or character. My question is, what, what happens to a person who receives information, gets information, and and just cannot un, cannot make that real connection to reality, and that that thought is their perception, which is their reality. I know that's a poorly phrased question, but I just I wanted you to react to that if you can. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to keep in mind that racial socialization and racial identity are processes. They're not sort of discrete events. And for some people, they're raised in families and communities where they are receiving the support of parents and others to really understand their history, their culture, their identity. And it develops at sort of a steady pace. Um, and they have people helping them filter around sort of what are credible sources of information, what are sources of information that are not credible. There are some people that don't have that type of support from their family or their community. And you're right, they can get overwhelmed at some point with this information about, oh, wow, you know, I've been involved, you know, I've been raised or lived in a bubble where I didn't understand my identity, where my culture wasn't appreciated and they're really hungry for that. And for them too, it's gonna to be a process. It might be a process that starts later, but it's gonna be a process. It's not gonna be that all of a sudden I've heard some information and now I'm able to synthesize it all into who I am. And I think we also have to think about, as we were talking before about implicit bias and the way that it works. And a lot of this has to do with the architecture of our brain. So are inundated with thousands of pieces of information at any given moment, and it's more information than our brains can consciously process. And so we're constantly in this filtering process where our brains are trying to figure out what is credible, what's not credible, what it should pay attention to, what it should let go. And that filtering process is informed by the stereotypes that we pick up in our environment. Um, and you know, Beverly Daniel Tatum, who I'm sure you're familiar with, a big name in this field, she likens this process of absorbing stereotypes in our environment to the same process of absorbing smog. We're largely unaware of it and it happens without us knowing. Mm -hmm. And so we're absorbing all these stereotypes and then we get in these situations where we either have partial information or we're out of time, we don't feel like paying attention and our brain is using this filtering process to sort of figure out how to make sense of the world. And so, you know, a lot of the implicit biases are outside of our control. Now, there are also explicit biases as well, but there's a lot happening in our brain that is informed by the stereotypes that we're all picking up in the environment. And it's not just white people picking up these, these stereotypes. We are also picking up stereotypes through the media, um, through the communities and environments that we're in about what it means to be black. And that is informing how our brain processes information as we walk out in the world. Yeah, I remember learning before I understood implicit bias. And again, like you said, I mean, our brain is receiving 11 million bits of information each moment. We can only handle 30 or 40 consciously, two or three things. And uh, the vast majority is going into our unconscious brain. So when I first learned about that, I mean, before that, it would be like I'd be doing a, a seminar 
and somebody would raise their hand and say, Eric, I don't have a problem with a person's, uh, you know, gender, race, sexual orientation, as long as they get the job done. And my immediate thought was liar, liar, pants on fire, you know. <laughs> and then uh, what I learned is that it is literally possible for someone to say that I don't have a problem with someone because of their gender, their race, their sexual orientation. It's possible for them to say it, believe it, take and pass a lie detector test that says that they're telling the truth and still discriminate against people based upon their race, their gender, their sexual orientation. So it's amazing how powerful the, the brain is and how much information it has collected from our environment. But there's another perspective that I have as well. Uh, Randy, I'd love to hear your thoughts. That as we look at explicit and implicit bias, I believe that if we're not careful, implicit bias has become a catch-all for people. Uh, this, oh my God, I, I learned that I have some unconscious bias, so I can't be held accountable for that. I believe that part of the reason why people have embraced unconscious or implicit bias is because sometimes we haven't made space for people to really own their explicit bias. And I believe that bias is a human condition. And part of me certainly believes that we ought to be challenging people around those biases. But part of me believes that we ought to create safe enough space where people can own their explicit biases and then be able to work on those in a community of the rest of us who have those same, not the same biases, but we have biases in these spaces as well. What are your thoughts? I agree with that completely. I mean, if you think about it, um, it is very dangerous in our current social context to be branded as something like racist or even for someone to say that you have done something racist. Um, it can cost you your career. It can cost you your family. It can cost you your social circle. Um, we have not made space for people to own their explicit biases. And I think it was Ibram Kendi who said that we have virtually rendered the word racist sort of not valuable anymore. It's supposed to be used to, as an adjective to describe a situation, not necessarily a, sort of a description of your entire character for most people, but it's not really a safe word for us to use anymore. And so I agree with you. We have not made space for people to own the fact that maybe they don't want to have biases, but they recognize that they do because the consequences for saying that are so high. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so a story that's coming to mind, not a story, but a situation. Uh, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, Jerry Jones, is under fire because of a photograph that he was in when he was 14 years old in the South, 1957, 58. Wow. And the, it's a photograph of a, uh, a number of kind of a crowd slash mob of white boys, white men who are uh, exhibiting some anger, frustration toward uh, some African-Americans. Uh, they were the same age. And he is captured and highlighted as a very young 14-year-old boy. His defense is that he was curious. He didn't accept or deny he was just curious and so 
I heard that and I was wondering, curious of what? Sometimes we have the fight that's about to happen and people are in the crowd just curious about who's going to fight and who's going to get beat up, right? Not really a part of the fight, but indeed curious. But I also thought that there, when I looked at the photo, heard his defense, that there was some level of comfort being on this side of curiosity, that any of that venom, hatred, hurtful language, I don't think, and this is my perspective, I don't think it was intended for him. So he was safe being a bystander, a bystander. Mm, wow. Can you talk about maybe how with implicit bias or even the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, or anything, discrimination, et cetera, how the bystander sometimes calls out the, I'm out because I'm just a bystander, right? Or even that was so long ago and I was too young to process what was happening, but I may have very well benefited from that, going back to Jim Crow and before. But I really want to land on that bystander kind of default mechanism. Yeah, I mean, uh, my personal perspective is that either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And in this case, you know, he was being a bystander, um, a part of the crowd, that whether he was curious or had some other motivation, he was part of the reason these young men felt threatened and felt like they were not safe. And I think you have to own that. I think it was Ellie Wiesel who said, silence can be golden, but it can also be yellow. And I think he has to be able to own the fact that in that moment, his silence was causing harm. His presence, whether he thought he was being there out of curiosity or something else, um, that was causing harm. And I think you can own the fact that you made choices in your past that may have caused harm that maybe you would do differently in the future. Though in the case of Jerry Jones, I think, you know, if we look at his track record, how many black coaches has he hired? Where was he on the whole Colin Kaepernick situation? You know, I would wonder what his choices would be today. But I think we can own the fact that being a bystander can cause harm. And I think the other thing I want to say is that LeBron made a really great point about this situation where he was asking the media to keep the same energy that they had for Kyrie when they're talking about Jerry Jones. And Jerry Jones is very much getting a pass. He is someone with a lot of privilege and a lot of power, and he's being allowed to sort of duck and weave around this. Um, and he should, just as Kyrie deserves the negative uh, pushback that he has received for the things that he has done with regards to anti-Semitism, Jerry Jones needs to own the consequences of his actions back then and talk about whether or not those are the same choices we make today. Right, I, I love your perspective on that and I totally agree with that. Uh, so here's, so, so as we work with uh, dominant cultures uh, you know, on a regular basis, I think that when they hear a scenario like Jerry Jones, uh, a picture comes up from when he was 14 years old and he was standing with a mob, you know, and we look at that and, we, and, and they look at that and think that's so unfair that you're going to make people accountable today for everything they ever did, every dumb thing that they ever did as a kid, every picture they ever took. And uh, there's a part of me that says, hey, I understand that. 
you know, I understand your frustration that we would go back and pull all those things forward and make people responsible for everything they ever did or said or every picture they took. None of us would ultimately want to be accountable for every picture that we've ever taken, every dumb thing we ever did. I don't think that's the, the issue ultimately. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to what you're saying. Where are you today? Number one, do you have the language to articulate the, you know, maybe the mistake and the foolishness of what you did then? And is there evidence today that you are someone different? And I think that if you don't, if you can't provide evidence today that you are different, and to the contrary, there's maybe some evidence that suggests that there's a line between that person and this person, that's the bigger challenge. And I think people miss that time. Absolutely. And I think accountability really is acknowledging that that is a part of your story. You know, that does not have to be your whole story, right. but it's part of your story. And, you know, I see a lot of parallels in these conversations about CRT, where people are now wanting to say that certain things in our country's history are not a part of our country's story, that we don't need to talk about those things. And I think accountability is saying we have a whole story and there are ugly parts and there are beautiful parts. But to tell the truth, we have to tell all of that narrative. We can't just tell part of it. And we can talk about how we as a country or we as individuals have evolved over time, but we can't ignore the ugly parts of our past. Right, right. Judy asks a question here, just uh, can you speak uh, to effective strategies to reduce implicit bias and facilitate objectivity in the work context? Uh, certainly uh, we're seeing this a lot around performance evaluations, the hiring decisions. Uh, what are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I really think, um, one, I always tell people to look at the data. So look at your hiring data first to understand kind of what uh, your inequity looks like within your organization. Who's being recruited? Who's being interviewed? Who's making it past the interview round? And then does your diversity at the entry level look the same as your diversity at the C-suite level? So looking at your data to really understand sort of where the problem and pain points are. But I think the other thing is to really try to understand the fact that our brains are flawed. We have these biases and they are going to interfere with the way that we uh, do these processes like hiring and performance reviews. And so we need to do our best to take as much subjectivity out of the process as possible. And so that comes from having very clear criteria that are objective, that comes from uh, doing as many things as possible blindly so that we're sort of not allowing our brains to get that sensory input about people's race or people's gender. And we know that these things work, taking out the subjectivity works. You know, one of my favorite examples is the research that was done on symphony orchestras. And for a long time, yeah. they were, almost entirely male. And it was almost as if, you know, women did not have the capacity to play at high levels right. in these organizations. And when they made the audition uh, processes more blind, then those numbers started to even out. And they would uh, hold the auditions so that the people who were reviewing them couldn't see who it was. It was, there was a curtain. You couldn't see who was playing or performing. And so you had to judge them solely on their performance. And what do you know, once they started doing that, 
more women started being hired into these symphony orchestras. And the brain is so complicated that they realized at a certain point that even with the curtain there, people were picking up on clues. So they had to do things like hide the fact that women wore different shoes than men, because just hearing the way their shoes um, yeah. sounded on the floor gave people a cue that this is a woman or a man. So taking the subjectivity out, acknowledging that our brains have these biases and we really need to put as much objectivity as we can into these processes so that they're, you know, I, I won't say they're, they'll be completely absent of bias, but we take as much bias out of the process as possible. And I think we see this for youth as well. A lot of the research around gifted and talented pro programs shows that if the way that you select kids to go into gifted and talented programs is that you have teachers identify them, then the demographics are not gonna match the population. But if you use objective criteria, such as test scores, it's gonna come much closer to what our population demographics look like. So I think finding as much, uh, as many ways as possible to take the subjectivity out of these processes, understanding that our brains rely on these biases is one of the most important things we can do um, to help with that in the workplace. One of the things that uh, uh, what, we, what we've seen is so a lot of corporations started trying to go blind, if you will, go to blind processes. And some of the research uh, uh, concluded that we had to go back to seeing because blind sort of made it worse for us. And I, I believe that that in part is because there are so many ways that our brain can pick up on who people are uh, that uh, making it blind just gives an advantage to the bias uh, that, that's operating inside of us. So people had to start opening their eyes back up and saying, hey, let's we've got to manually put diversity in there because it won't happen on its own. And if we're playing this quote unquote game of blind. Let me ask. Absolutely. And uh, if I could just add to that, too, I think part of that as well is what are the criteria? So we make it blind, but what are the criteria that we are then using? I mean, you have to look at that as well, because there's a lot of way to introduce bias by using criteria that favor one group or another. Right. So right. it's a very nuanced and complicated process, definitely. Right. Let me ask you this. Uh, my wife and I were talking the other day about some new research that's come out. But I, my question to you is, is there, are there things that we can learn from professional sports that could be applied in corporate America? And I'll, I'll, I'll tee it up in this way. Uh, I say all the time that we had to fight Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL to get diversity into those spaces only to make the owners richer. So if you were to ask the Jerry Jones of the world today, which bank account would you prefer? the one before diversity or the one after diversity, there would be no question they'd say, I'll take right. the one today. Uh, what we're seeing right now is we've seen the progression of, for example, in football from black guys could run fast, they could hit hard, but they weren't smart enough to be the quarterback. Now we're seeing almost every team trying to get a, a black quarterback because they are so versatile and so many things that they can do and so much creativity that they bring to the table. So we are now, there's no question in the world that we have bought diversity in sport. We see that it's made sports teams better, more exciting, brought uh, diverse audiences to the table. How do we get there? Is there a correlation 
to the workplace because I believe the same diversity makes workplaces better. But I'm not sure if there are ways to be open to the objectivity uh, and, and ultimately the, 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 the value of talent. Yeah, so let me just say as a caveat, I'm not a huge sports person, so I'm probably the wrong person to comment on this analogy. But one thing I will say is that I still think that the world of professional sports has a lot to learn. Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. Like, absolutely. You know, no there are more black quarterbacks, no you know, doubt. there are more blacks, uh, you know, in higher positions on the teams. But as you go up in the organization, it's still very white. Absolutely. I mean, how many black owners do we have um, and, and things like that? And I also think that, you know, athletes have really been trying to use their platforms to fight, to talk about social justice and yeah. equity and things like that. And they are constantly told by the organization and the owners to stay in their position. No doubt. Um, we Except tend to her. think because they're millionaires that somehow they're not subject to the same pressures that the rest of us are uh, subject to in the workplace, but I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, there's still a ceiling at which, um, you know, the the owners and the organizations and the leagues want to see them at within the league. Yeah, no and they, there's still certain roles that they don't want them to play and certain things that they don't want them to use their platforms to advocate for. Right, absolutely. You talked earlier, thank you for that insight too, in the connection with athletics, sports, and, you know, the business world. You talked about earlier using data. I have a, and you hit a nerve with me on that. Um, how do you interact? How do you work with a person, C-suite or individual contributor, who receives the data and then immediately questions the instrument that has been used to provide the data. So they the, the data shows what, what it is and they say, well, is that a validated tool, right? And, and let's really critique the tool and then never look at changing their own behavior to get a different outcome or a different data source. Can you talk about how to, from a psychological perspective, how to deal with these people? Yeah, I think you have hit a nerve. And I think that this is not just something that we're trying to figure out in the corporate space. We're trying to figure this out in our entire social context. I mean, if you think about the pandemic, you've got scientists saying the data is very clear that if you have a wear a mask, you're less likely to get or spread this disease. The data is clear that these vaccines are safe and effective. And you've got a lot of people that are saying, I, I don't believe that. I, I don't care that all the, the global consensus among scientists is that the data point us in this direction. We just don't care. I think it's a, a larger phenomena around the fact that we have moved towards a place where we don't respect expertise. Right. Um, you know, and that's not just in corporate America, that's in medicine. Um, I give people the example that um, son is 12. And when I was pregnant with him, um, there was, uh, I, was it some sort of other swine flu was going around. And it was nowhere near as big as this uh, coronavirus. It didn't end up being a pandemic, but there was a lot of concern about it. And I remember my doctor at the time saying, hey, the swine flu is going around. 
it's dangerous for women who are pregnant. They got this new vaccine down at the health department. I think you should go down and get it. And the next day I went down and get it uh, and got it. I, tr I trusted that this doctor who had spent his entire career learning about medicine and how to keep women and babies pregnant had some knowledge that I didn't have that could keep me safe. But we're at a point right now where people trust their own uh, gut feeling, which we know is informed by implicit bias over science. And I think there's a, a real disconnect there. And it's a place where I struggle as well because I am very much a person who thinks about numbers and science and data and research. And that's how I sort of make arguments. When my doctor talks to me, that's what she says to me. The data says there's a new study. And then I'm like, great, let's do it. But not everybody um, sort of organizes their worldview that way. And so we have to figure out a way to talk to people um, that speaks to them. I don't think that data is gonna speak to everyone and we've got to figure out what will. For, uh, and I see somebody putting in the Dun and Cougar effect. Um, and I think for some people, it's personal stories. You hear people all the time say, well, my cousin took the vaccine and he got sick, so I'm not gonna take it. You know, it doesn't matter what these other 70 million people experience. My cousin felt sick, so I'm not gonna take it. There are some people who respond more to personal anecdotes. And so we have to, I think often the people that are consulting we look at the data, we look at the research, we look at the studies, and that's what speaks to us. And we assume that that's what speaks to other people. Right. And I think part of our job in doing this work is starting to understand what are the languages that speak to other people and how do we translate what we get from research in a way that speaks to them. I love that. And I think, so what you're talking about is being thoughtful and strategic around how we onboard people. I, I My perspective is that a division and tribalism, those are powerful tools that are used to gain power. And so as some are utilizing those tools to gain power and they're finding that easy, they're really uh, delivering a great deal of harm uh, to the broader society and our ability to work effectively together. I do believe that one of the techniques to bring down unconscious bias is developing better relationships with diverse people. I think that's a big part of the answer here, that you're gonna to have to go to the ground and you're gonna to have to help people establish relationships. That's what we saw through the pandemic is that we were, eventually we were sending people back to their family doctors, back to their family members that were, uh, that had good insight on what was in our best interest. And I think people struggle with I think this social media allows the negative to go viral quicker and our basic distrust for government and everything else weighs in because I was seeing the same uh, level of ignorance almost from from some parts of the black community as I was from poor whites, you know, and, you know, it's just uh, people are suspicious and then the, the viral nature of social media allows people to sort of get entrenched. And then I'll ask you one other thing. The, the, the truth of the matter is we don't know what the long-term effects of the, uh, you know, of the uh, medicines that we're taking are going to have on us. So nobody knows that for sure. But I think based upon the best information that we have available, this was life and death. And we had to try to choose life right now. 
Absolutely. And I think what you said about tribalism is very important because I think the other thing that we don't often talk about is what are people going to lose if they change their mind? If you are in a community where your family, your church members, your employers all think a certain way, even if you change your mind, if you're convinced, if I convinced you that there is another way, you could potentially lose a lot by acknowledging that the perspective of everyone around you is not correct or is not your perspective. So I think that's the other piece. And even, you know, when you think about organizations as well, it's hard to be the first person to say, you know what, we do have a problem. There are some people in here that maybe are doing things that perpetuate bias. That's a that's not an easy place to be in. So I think we have to also think about the fact that part of it is maybe convincing people, but the other part of it is thinking about what are people risking? What do they have to lose when they change their perspective and how do we mitigate for that? Let me ask you one other big question. I apologize for the big nature of this question. Maybe your answer will be more simple, simpler than the, the question. But as I look at our nation, I say to people all the time that we are not as divided as we're told we are. But if you keep telling us we hate each other, we'll literally fight in the streets. And I, my personal view is that division and the strategies of division tribalism are an existential threat to us. And I believe that we have to find we need an army of people that do what we do. Uh, but that's not likely to happen anytime soon. And it feels like there is more short-term benefit to division, tribalism, and negativism. What's the, what's the answer for us? We cannot keep moving at a snail's pace to change a person at a time when the opposition is overwhelming us. Uh, is it that we will just have to fall to such a level that it's that fall that gets our attention? What are your thoughts about are there any big solutions on the horizon or ways that we ought to be thinking to help us uh, as a community, as a country, as a world? Honestly, I wish I knew the answer to this because I think like all of us in my various circles, whether it's family or work or community, you know, this, this tribalism uh, impacts the way that I'm able to be in community with people. And there are certain relationships where I've decided it's just not worth it to have this relationship. And there are certain relationships where I've decided it's not just not worth it to have these conversations. And I don't think either of those are the best choice, but it right. seems that is the place that we found ourselves in. I will say that I, I think that one of the issues is that we're not all dealing with the same set of facts. Mm. Right. It is hard to overcome these differences when we're all operating with a different set of facts. And when all of us are convinced that only our set of facts is correct. And so somehow we have to get to a point where we have not a completely shared view of the world or the situation, but more commonality than we have now. I don't know how we get there, but I, I don't know how you and I can come to a solution around these very big and important issues when we are coming at it with a di completely different set of facts. Let me throw one other thing at you, but, but facts are a slippery slope. And as a researcher, you know that. 
if mm -hmm. I take from here, this section of the data, it tells one story. If I include this section, so it all depends on where the cutoff is. I believe that it may uh, harken back to fundamental trust, that it will take the human dynamic to get us to a place where we're even willing to entertain the data. Because I think the temptation for all of us is so strong to use the segments of the data that tell our story and that it's harder for any of us to include aspects of the data that don't reinforce what we believe. So I think we might find ourselves back to the very basic uh, task of developing community and relationship and deciding that we like each other. And maybe from there, we can then spring into how do we operate out of a similar set of facts? Because people, I mean, we're seeing CNN and Fox News look at the same story and tell two different things. No, absolutely. And I think by facts, I mean sort of worldviews of the world. Um, and I will say, you know, there's a psychologist out of Harvard. I think her name is Julia Minson. And I saw her on a podcast. And one of the things that I was struck by that she said um, was that we, we know the right things to do, sort of listen with an open mind, put yourself in someone else's perspective, but we don't actually know how to do those things. We think yeah. we know how to do those things, but we don't know how to do those things. And I think that's another fundamental skill that is missing. Um, and she talks about sort of listening to understand as opposed to listening to persuade. And I think that's another obstacle in some of these conversations that we're having that when I'm listening to you, I'm already listening with my perspective involved. And I'm listening, thinking about what am I going to say after he finishes making his point, as opposed to really trying to listen uh, from a perspective of, I don't necessarily have to agree with you, but maybe I can learn sort of what in your background and experience has gotten you to the point that this is the way that you view the world. And I don't think that's something that we recognize that we're not good at. I think this is, this is a great, very good point. I love what you said around uh, data. You talked about data. I, I agree with that. I also agree and I believe that this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is a science. It is a science. It's, it is not something that you just wake up and believe that you could master or have a strong skill or competency after listening to a 30 minute, 60 minute podcast, having a two hour training. That's not the way this thing works. It's a science. It's a social and behavioral science deal. It's looking at how past experiences continue to inform, be it negative or positive, inform and provide the data to that person in the way they see the world and experience the world. It's a science. And so I know we don't have enough time, but I would yeah, love to talk that. more right. about uh, a situation that I'm experiencing with uh, folks who are wanting to be reformed. In short, I've heard, I'm a recovering racist. How can you reform me? I'm a recovering bigot sexist, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm curious about that. Like what's, what's the treatment for that recovering racist, recovering anti-Semite? What, what's the treatment? Right. And, and then how can that change thought or behavior be sustainable, particularly 
if there's another event that triggers that negative schema, that negative implicit bias that really says, oh, yeah, I, I knew it wasn't, you know, it's too good to be true, right? You yeah. all are that way. I know that's a different conversation at a different time. And this has been phenomenal. I want to say thank you. Thank you. I just want to say one more thing to your point. I would love to come back and have that conversation. But I always tell people in my implicit bias courses that you have to treat bias like asthma, not like the measles. With mm. the measles, you take one shot and you're done for life. With asthma, you've got to manage this thing over the course of your life. So there's medicine that you have to take every day. You have to recognize that there are certain things that are going to trigger your asthma. You have to recognize that you may one day go into an asthma attack and need additional support to get that under control. And I think that's what we have to understand with our brain and biases, that this is not, I can't give you a one-time training and I have cured you for, from bias for life. This is a journey. It is something you will have to recognize and manage over the course of your life. And you're going to have to understand that there are certain situations, maybe you're afraid, maybe you're out of time, maybe you don't have all the information you need to make a good decision. There are going to be situations that trigger these biases and you have to be aware of that. And there are going to be moments where despite your best efforts, your biases are going to take over and you're going to act in accordance to your biases. And you have to know what you need to do to recover from that. Um, so I think that's how we have to think about all of these things. You know, I think it's great for people to bring in consultants and bring in trainers, but a consultant and a trainer is not going to cure you forever. You've got to commit to a lifelong process. Right, right, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would share that time we talked about this before the University of Wisconsin, there was a research team that came up with sort of three steps for bringing down conscious and unconscious bias over the over a longer period of time. Number one is you have to have increase your awareness of inequity, what people are faced with. Number two, you have to increase your uh, concern, your empathy and concern for those things. And then number three, you have to really develop those strategies and techniques that you're practicing on a regular basis that will and so if you're doing that kind of consistent work over time, that's at least one piece of research that talks about how people sort of come through this. I'll ask you a final question, uh, Dr. Ballou, and then we'll have you back to talk about sort of the mental health consequences of racism, sexism, and those things as well. What have you found to be uh, uh, your go-to uh, skill, technique, strategy, that has caused many of your clients to appreciate your perspective or uh, be willing to do the work, uh, you know, to, to bring about change. What are some things that you've done to help uh, organizations uh, embrace the very difficult message of bias, whether it be explicit or implicit? I think one of the exercises that I often do in my trainings is it's called the Trusted Six. You can find it on the web where you have people sort of list the six people who are closest to them outside of their family. And then you start looking at how similar they are to you. You know, how many of them share your race, your gender, your ethnicity, your language, nationality, and people start recognizing the fact that their inner circles are usually very similar to them on a lot of dimensions. And talk about the fact that you know, this type of affinity bias where we feel more empathy and affection towards people who are similar to us is one of the things that feeds our biases. And, 
you know, help people think about the way that our society is set up to keep this in check. We're still living with the consequences of redlining. Our communities are often racially segregated. Our churches are often racially segregated. A lot of careers actually have more racial segregation than we want to acknowledge. And so helping people understand that we have to be intentional about creating opportunities in our lives for us to create relationships with people who are different than us. And it is that repeated exposure to people who are different over time that helps you to start build that empathy. But it's not gonna happen if we're not intentional about it. If I just go about living my life you know, organically, my life is gonna be very black. It's gonna be very Christian. It's gonna be very American. It's gonna be very, in my case, democratic. And so it is on me to open up spaces in my life where I can have exposure to people who are different than me so that I can start building more affection for people who are different than me. Mm. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Uh, you blew through that time like it was nothing. I mean, we could listen to you for another hour. Are there any final comments that you want to make, uh, share with our community before we uh, sign off. We've gone over just a little bit, but it was well worth it to hear uh, your wisdom and perspective and how easily uh, these uh, this wisdom rolls off your tongue. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I would just say um, to everyone that for me, a big part of the expertise in this um, this particular area, diversity, equity, and inclusion comes from lived experience. Yeah. And as we are sort of navigating this world, I think one of the most important things that we can do is that trust is to trust that other people are experts in their own experience. And I think one of the most harmful things that we do is sort of doubt people when they're telling us their story or their history or their experiences. And we really ought to come from a place of trusting that other people are accurate historians of their own experience. And I think that would bring us a long way. Right, Tommy? That, yeah, that's well said. Again, we'll definitely have you back if you are open to coming back. I know our, our community is reacting the way they are. They want to see you back and hear you back as well. So thank you for uh, spending your time this morning, sharing your wisdom as well. Um, I've taken a lot of notes, uh, right. typically just a conversation, but I have a, f a full pad of notes, it seems. So I need to get back into school and uh, catch up with you. Thank you, doctor, for spending your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And community, we thank you for joining us again this week. Uh, we uh, trust that you will continue to do your uh, work on the time that we are apart. And hopefully you'll join us again next Saturday morning at 930 as we continue these powerful diversity conversations. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Diversity Conversations. Visit us on LinkedIn, YouTube, and of course, Facebook. We will see you at the next conversation.